anyone ever wants to Google the marshmallow challenge, it's a challenge where uh, teams get um, like spaghetti sticks, one marshmallow tape and whatever, and they're given a time limit, if it's 20 minutes. And the goal is to build the tallest tower with the marshmallow on top. And they've done this forever. Um, kindergartners, elementary school teams perform better than MBA students, than groups of CEOs, groups of business people, time and time again. And the takeaway from that is all of the adults think they know the answer. The following is a conversation with Kevin Hannigan. Kevin is the chief learning officer at Click, a data and analytics company. He is also a data literacy advocate and the author of Turning Data into Wisdom. Kevin's work involves improving data literacy, overcoming implicit and cognitive biases, ethical decision-making, and data interpretation. Here's our conversation. Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Dale. Looking forward to it. Sure, of course. You know, I'm really happy that we're able to connect and have a discussion today because I think what you're doing is super, super relevant, especially considering uh, today's day and age. So to give people a bit of highlight, and a bit of background, you're a data literacy expert and kind of are doing a lot of stuff, especially in the area of AI. Uh, so before I get into all that and you know a lot of really fun subject matter, just to get started, how'd you get interested in data literacy? Um, that's a really good question. I, I mean, I, I'm a tech geek, so by trade, I'm computer science and math, but I, I really like the psychology of things. And I went back to school to learn about adult learning, but I don't know if it was one exact moment. I just started to notice like 10, 15 years ago that I'm teaching people how to build visualizations and how to use like a bar chart and a pie chart. And I'm getting these stares of people in, in, in the class like, okay. And then I just asked like the million dollar question, well, why would you want to build one? And they're like, I don't know. I just follow these steps and the light turns green and you told me I did a good job. So it was like, we're, we're now data's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. We're trying to do data democratization. Everyone sees news feeds, they see Amazon reviews, but we're not actually teaching people how to make decisions from it. And again, mm -hmm. it wasn't one point in time, but it just started to be, I was getting frustrated because someone would see a chart in the news and they're like, see the sky's falling. I'm like, that's not what the chart's saying at all. You know, question it, where's their data coming from? What's their perspective? Um, and the more and more I did that, people would, as soon as they heard me say data, they're like, time out. Uh, I'm an English guy. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a artsy person. I, it's not for me. It, and it just kind of motivated me to say, no, it's unfortunately for everyone now. Um, you don't need to be a numbers person, but you still need to be able to handle data and information. Can you make the argument that data is art in a way? A hundred percent agree. I mean, you think about science, and that's one of the problems. Like you grow up, you go to math. You're in, you know, second grade math and they're like, two plus two is four. There's never a situation where it's not four. And then you go and you have mathematical calculus and algebra and it, it's taught like a science. So what I say is that the data is objective, but the way we interpret it is subjective. And that's an art. So I think it's complicated for people to understand because there is a science, but 100% is an art because I need to get different perspectives. I need to look at it and make sure I don't have biases and assumptions. And the, that's just not the science end, it's the arts end. So 100% agree. You know, it reminds me of a bit of an aside here, but when I was in college, my calculus professor, I think I went to office hours once or twice and he had a bunch of paintings and he said, I was just, I kind of pointed them out and he said, yeah, behind each one is like 17 calculus equations. So definitely I'm familiar with what you're talking about there, but 
Speaking of data, you know, and as something I mentioned earlier with the rise in AI, and you know, I'm sure it's spilled on my newsfeed, your newsfeed, everyone's newsfeed these days, and it seems like every AI startup is getting just like a gajillion dollars in funding. Uh, but specifically about AI, how do you think AI has impacted our interpretation of data? Well, I, and I don't mean the term lazy in terms of negative, right? I, I think like the world and technology is giving us more tools to get broader answers and get broader answers faster, which is great, but that's the shortcut. The piece that I think we're missing with all of these tools, like I might know nothing about a particular topic and I can go to AI and I can, I can write a you know, thousand word article or paper, but what's missing in that process that I think sometimes people just either forget or don't know is it, we have to question it. We have to understand the context. One of the biggest challenges we see in data and analytics is people might do the right in analysis. They might bring in the right data sources, but they've asked the wrong question. Mm -hmm. And so with AI, more importantly, if you ask the wrong question, it's going to give you the right answer to the wrong question, but you're not coached in, in critically thinking and questioning it to prompt it differently. So it, it, it's just become ubiquitous now, but I don't think we have enough of what I call, I guess you call them soft skills, right? Like questioning it. We just, you know, the confirmation bias, we're all fast paced. Here's the answer. Time out. Let's move on. Next topic. And, and we can't do that anymore. You know, one of the things that you said, uh, a bit of also an aside, but you were like, you know, I could write an article and kind of publish it. You could ask ChatGPT to write an article and then pretend <laughs> like you actually wrote it. So that's something that's happening these days. But on a more serious note, I think that there's a big concern in the sense that AI definitely has a lot of benefits and, you know, can really uh, streamline a lot of things. But Sometimes when you're actually working and kind of, you know, we'll just talk about getting raw data, for example, you're learning much more about the data and you're able to interpret it in a much more factual way as opposed to just having it slapped or kind of thrown in front of you, you know? Absolutely. I mean, the, when you look at the human brain and AI and what they're good at and bad at, um, we are really good at making connections and applying the human element context. We're really bad at crunching large data sets and numbers. And AI is really good at that. We can give it all of that data. We can say, find some patterns for us, find the needle in the haystack. But at the end of the day, it comes back and it says, here's the needle. We need to make sure, is that really the needle we want? What are we gonna do with it? What other questions should we be asking? So it, it all works in tandem, but the, the explosion of AI means great things for innovation and technology. We're able to do things faster, quicker, if we use the right questioning critical thinking skills. Got it. So speaking of questioning and critical thinking, probably a lot of it has to do with framing and how you interpret the data. And on that note, you actually had a really interesting LinkedIn post that I saw that talked about data interpretation. So you essentially spoke about two studies, you know, of similar results, similar parameters, uh, but one advertised a 30% mortality rate and the other advertised a 70% survival rate. So what framing do you think impact really has on how we interpret data? A massive. And I think to kind of answer that, to go back, it, I, it's fascinating because a lot of it goes back to how we've evolved as humans and how the brain works. And if you think about it, the, the biggest part of the brain, the one that's around for you know centuries, is, is the emotional brain in, in that we're first emotional. And then we started adding on to the brain where we have the critical thinking and, and so forth. But framing is our first impression of how we see things it's going to trigger that reaction. So when you see words that are negative, like mortality or similar, but it's not even just positive words, negative words. I mean, you go to a car dealer, right? And they have the sticker price, sticker price is framing. It's like, okay, you're gonna pay $70,000 for the car and you go in 
and the sales rep nicely is like, you know what, I'm going to make you an offer. I'm going to give you 20% off. Your brain instantly says, oh my God, that's a deal. That might be the original sticker price. 70,000 is your anchor point. So it's called anchoring bias. Mm -hmm. And there's thousands of these biases where the brain is listening to a frame, whether it be an anchor or whether it's a data point that was made available to us. And because there's so much information out there, when we're not thinking about it intentionally, we go back to our long-term memory and those frames come back and, and play a role. They could be positive frames, right? If it's a positive feeling, they could be negative frames. Um, marketing will use it to their advantage, but at the end of the day, it, how something is framed is almost as important as what the data is saying, you know, at its objective level. For sure. You mentioned earlier that, you know, way early on that emotional states are kind of that emotion was the first thing that humans had. Do you think as time has evolved, most people are born with that emotional bias? Or do you think, you know, over time, there is some percentage of the population that is more objective or is more logical than it is emotional before? I mean, yeah, there, there's certain, it's always there. I don't necessarily know if we've evolved away from it, but a lot of it is based off your environment because it, it, what's happening is like, you know, I'll give a personal story. So I grew up um, a couple of houses down, there were kids around my age, but one of them was a troublemaker would always shoot like BB guns around. And yeah. one day hit my parents' window and my parents were like talking dad and all this stuff. And the kid had red hair and like in my long-term memory, I'm like, okay, red head, bad, red head, bad. And then I think a few movies came out later one was actually called The Problem Child, and the kid had red hair. I'm not consciously biased to redheads. I don't even know I am. You're getting conditioned. Uh, yes, I'm getting conditioned based on the environment I'm in, uh, whereas someone else that didn't have that neighbor, that didn't see those movies, wouldn't. And the trigger to my system was I have four kids. My third one came out. I'm not even talking a little. Like, more hair than I have now came out, and it was flaming red. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, he's not a bad kid. Um, so, so I think it's a little combination of both. I think we all still have that bias. That's just how the human brain works. But based off your environment, you may be more logic based. Um, you may be conscious to do that. There are certain schools when you're in primary school that focus on those skills more than others. Um, and you'll be more prone to be more logical than that, but it never goes away. It's just how the brain is. You know, it's so incredible to think that I think a lot of people, you know, try to be good and a lot of it has to do with how we're raised and, you know, we can get into the whole nature nurture argument. But it's really interesting how, you know, we're, we go with good intention, but because of, for whatever reason, our surroundings or the things that happen around us, they create these biases in our head. And then we see something like, you know, you saw red hair and then you just started subconsciously associating that, you know, but when in a context of, you know, having a, having a child, something very near and dear to you, kind of, you know, you saw that your child had red hair, you were like, no, wait, you know, my, my child is great. My child is awesome. You know, my, you know, that's when you recognize your bias. So. I think really, really incredible. And definitely, I think there's going to be a lot of work done around how people can, you know, take actionable steps to uncover their implicit bias or, you know, that, that uh, subconscious bias. But I'm certainly no subject matter expert there. So I'll leave that to the, the MIT scientists or whoever wants to pursue that. Um, but, you know, another thing that you were mentioning was kind of our brains and turning data into wisdom. So right now, kind of scientifically, how do you think or, you know, you probably know, how, how do our brains uh, make decisions? Yeah, well, I mean, there's different, and there's a whole bunch of schools of thought out there, but they all come down to two different, um, very similar traits. And, and you have to think about the, the brain, it's a computer. Mm -hmm. Think of it as a computer. What we bring in, uh, studies show there's like 11 million different inputs, whether you're thinking of like the different senses at any point in time. If you're trying to put that in the brain, the brain's going to process it, you're going to overheat. We don't really have a fan in our brain, and it's going to take forever. 
So what the brain is built to do, which again is the genius of, of the brain, is it picks up shortcuts. And sometimes they're called heuristics, sometimes they're called other things, but a shortcut would be, I'm gonna go back into your long-term memory that you're not consciously aware of. I'm gonna find pattern recognition. I'm gonna find in that situation, I'm walking down the street and someone walks by me and it looks like they're giving me a stare and they have red hair. I'm not thinking, my brain is going in my long-term memory and they're saying, you had 62 situations where you encountered a redhead and there was trouble, danger, walk away. And then all of a sudden you act on that, but you're not doing it consciously. It's in your long-term memory, but also these shortcuts don't process at all that information. Um, I, the, the analogy I'm sure a lot of your viewers have heard before when you're buying a car and let's say you want to buy a white SUV, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you see more white SUVs on the street. You don't, it's that you've told your brain it's relevant. So that mm -hmm. becomes part of its shortcut is, okay, now you care about white SUVs. I, I used to actually do a study when I did these live as the, and it was two day events, I'd wear a pink shirt. And then the next day I'd ask people, how many times, how many people saw men with pink shirts? And it was all raised their hands. I'm like, do you think I went around to these 10 people and paid them to wear a pink shirt? No, it's that we told your brain it was relevant. So mm -hmm. coming back to the decision-making, these things are all happening unconsciously. We need to then pause that if we can and say, okay, when could that be outdated? Because we talked about it, things are evolving so fast with AI and technology. Something that happened in your long-term memory a year ago, five years ago, last week, may have been true last week, but maybe it's not true today because we've moved technology fast. So we talk about when we do that, it's an outdated mental model. We make a decision based off of a, our brain finding a truth a year ago. It's yeah. not relevant anymore. So it, it's a great system. It's a shortcut system. It's so that we don't have to sleep 30 hours a day, mm -hmm. but it can't work by itself. It needs us to be aware that this is the process and we need to say, okay, time out. Let's question. Let's think about this. Let's think about different alternatives. Um, and when they work in tandem, it, I mean, amazing results. Is there any research around, for example, you know, some people, probably a lot of people in corporate America, you know, sleep a little bit less or say, as you get older, your brain functions a little slower. Is there any research between you know brain functionality and how you're able to overcome these biases? Well, absolutely. But the the and I think what's interesting is, and I'll get back to that. The the less about age, more about mindset and growth mindset. If you know, if you're aware, this is what happens. You're more easily able to. I wouldn't say prevent it, but work with it and mitigate it mm -hmm. where, you know, I'll do a training on unconscious bias and maybe like a two hour training. The first thing I'll do, let's say there's a hundred people as I'll ask people, how many people think they have a bias? Some people don't think they do. And so, but they raise their hand anyways. I'd say there's always about 10% of people that don't believe in bias. They think it's voodoo, They're like mm -hmm. oh, my brain doesn't work that way. I don't care what age you are you're not going to recover from that. You're not going to all of a sudden have like the light bulb. Like, so, but yes, the, I mean, we talk about a lot about physical fitness. Like mm -hmm. we want to go to the gym. We want to drink enough water. Well, mental fitness is mindfulness. It's sleep. It's making sure we have the right input and outputs. It's about challenging the brain and practicing. I mean, you don't see NFL and NBA stars just playing on game days. They practice. So mm -hmm. the more we do, you know, they talk about playing Sudoku or brain games the more we actively try these things out, the more we have mindfulness and we keep our emotions you know, at bay, yeah, the better we're gonna be at this, 100%. Do you think that mental fitness comes from physical fitness or physical fitness from mental fitness? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, 
I mean, I could see a situation, and I don't know, I'm not an expert in this, so I'm giving you my opinion here. Okay. I, when I don't have physical fitness, like if I don't go to the gym for two or three days, I am literally the worst person in the world. Like I'm cranky, I'm irritable, I don't get work done, I'm unproductive. And as much as I say, okay, I need to sleep or I need to be mindful, I can't. So for me, if the physical isn't there, I can't do the mental. I have to get that done first. But then I have four kids. All of them are like the complete opposite. One of them probably hasn't worked out in five years and then they can still go and sleep like a baby. Mm -hmm. Got it. Incredible how our minds work there. Um, do you think, you know, not to get la last uh, note on this topic, but do you think that the more kind of mentally fit that we are or the more physically fit that we are, the easier it is for us to overcome these biases? Absolutely. Because the more mentally fit we are, the more the brain is balanced and working properly and not overcompensating for lack of sleep or lack of oxygen, or the more that the um, parts of the brain that die to the emotional part are mm -hmm. not flailed. So you're walking down the street and you see a robber run out of a bank. Most of us, you know, depending on our background, might like run away. It's fight or flight. Like we, it's mm -hmm. protection at all costs. Cause the way we evolved is we were trying to protect ourselves from dinosaurs eating us and all those things is survival. So we need that, that always happens. But the more we can keep our brain mentally mindful, the um, more the emotions don't get the best of us. That's um, just a quick aside. When people say sleep on a decision, it's actually based in science. It's because mm -hmm. they want your brain to be at that balanced state. So sleep on it, you'll kind of reset a little bit and then maybe you'll make a, a better decision. Got it. Really fascinating research around this stuff. And, you know, really interesting to think that I think we can all, you know, make our choices, but a lot of us make those choices based off biases, which are out of our control. So a really, really deep conversation. I think uh, we got deep enough into it. I'll let everyone else have play with it in their heads. But back to the topic of bias and some of the things that we were discussing earlier, are there any actionable steps that we can take to condition our brains to really overcome bias? Absolutely. I mean, the biggest thing to me is getting different perspectives. Um, I'm a big fan of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And because of it's because everyone has different, what I call cognitive perspectives. So um, one of the things that I always do if I'm just by myself is I will play devil's advocate with myself, which is kind of boring and not as productive. But if I'm in a business setting and I'm working on a strategic decision, I will always put teams in two different teams. Mm -hmm. um, it actually is a famous case study with uh, John F. Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs when it came to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Bay of Pigs, he was in the room. Everyone was like, oh, he's the president. I can't talk back to him. I can't say he's wrong. He learned from psychologists. And then when he got to the Cuban Missile Crisis, he had two teams working in opposite rooms. And he actually appointed someone who was a, a antagonist in each room who basically said no to everything. Um, and then the results are better. So the first thing you can do is get those diverse perspectives. You can challenge yourself. You talked about AI. There are times I will go to chat GPT and I'm not using it to give me an answer. Yeah. I'm using it. I'm like, play, do Socratic questioning with me, play devil's advocate with me. What am I missing from this hypothesis? Here's what I think about the world right now. Tell me where I'm wrong. And so I'm not using it for them to give me decisions. I'm using it for them to ask me questions that I haven't thought about. Um, at, a, at another even lower level, there's skills like active listening, creativity that we don't practice enough. And so just going back to that, and I always joke with my kids, I've been through so many years of school, I've probably taken 
hundred courses on reading and writing, never taken a course on listening, but it's our most used communication skill. You know, so we, we don't learn how to active listen. So you, you foundationally start with those forever skills, listening, critical thinking, questioning. And then on top of that, you put in processes like you get different perspectives and you play devil's advocate. And if you're by yourself, you use chat GPT to say, question my logic and tell me where I might be wrong or what I'm not thinking about. I think uh, it might be a better use for chat GPT than how it's used a lot these days. I think, you know, probably the younger generations are seeing it as a shortcut, which, you know, the process that you think to make things easier isn't, you know, I think is a good thing to have, but actually using chat GPT to over instead of kind of doing those learnings, I don't think is, a, is the best idea for development, but you know, that's another conversation. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, but I like the sense that, you know, you're using chat GPT in the way that you have an original idea or you have an original thought, but you're asking it to play devil's advocate for the other perspective. So you can almost analyze both perspectives and, you know, while it might be impossible to make a hundred percent optimal decision, you're having, you know, all the points of view in front of you. So you can make a decision as well as you can with having that data. So I definitely think that's a really great use and something people should consider moving forward. But back to the, the topic of bias, as you were mentioning, you know, I know bias kind of delves into a few other kind of subcategories. So there's also cognitive bias and implicit bias. What are the differences between the two? Yeah, I think so. And a lot of times they're used as synonyms at the highest level. But when you go deeper, deeper, implicit bias tends to tie more to like stereotyping. So like the example of a redhead, right? Is a redhead. Okay, well, now people that, that have red hair are troublemakers, or you see it a lot in workplace and hiring and recruiting packages. Well, this person came from this college, so I'm going to associate them implicitly with this group that they may or may not be associated with. Okay. Whereas cognitive biases are more like your brain has a, a, a lot, you're bringing in lot data, you're trying to think rationally. And because of how we talk, the brain works, it's overwhelmed, it's short on time, too much stuff coming in. When we don't get the full picture, we make what we think is a rational decision, but our brain is making it based off of short information. So like, for example, confirmation bias is a cognitive bias. Um, it's, it's that when you have an opinion, you only see data that confirms your opinion and you don't see data that disproves it. And you, it doesn't mean you're mean, it doesn't mean you're a bad person or bad at your job. It's unintentional. You, you don't know it's happening. It's unconscious. So I might see something on the news that aligns with my political views. I'm like, see, I told you I was right. It's right over there. We don't see the opposite. We see the opposite. We just kind of skim over it. Or mm -hmm. we mentioned earlier with like the availability bias where um, people see more pink shirts or they see cars. So it's usually when the filters in your brain are giving you bits and pieces to draw you toward what you think is a rational decision, but it's not because it's filtering out stuff like other data points, like all of the other times you saw white cars in the street, but your brain didn't pay attention because it didn't think it was relevant. So very similar, same mechanisms, but implicit usually deals with more like discrimination, stereotypes, whereas cognitive biases tend to deal more with I'm making a less than ideal decision with a number because I'm hyper-focused on one part and I'm not seeing like the forest and the trees. Got it. So it sounds to recap, implicit bias is more conditioning and cognitive bias is more oriented towards decision-making. Yes, that'd be a very good high level. Okay. Awesome. Sounds good. Because I, I honestly didn't know the difference between the two. So I'm happy that you were able to, to give me the explanation. And, and just to add to that, for anyone that there, there's also a third bias, which is like algorithmic bias, which is mm -hmm. not any of those. It's not your brain. It's when someone's doing an AI model or similar in the training data going into it is biased. Then you might have a bias coming out of AI 
it's still related because someone's entering the data to train, but there's famous examples like Google's autonomous car. Um, the training data might not have included all different types of people. So it sees things and it doesn't know how to recognize them or credit card companies. They might be training data on um, people from low income neighborhoods. It's not a full perspective. So it's biasing the outputs. Got it. Interesting. So for example, you could read a high level overview of just some high level, you know, facts or conclusions that come out of a study. Uh, and, you know, that's algorithmic bias, as you stated. Uh, but that being said, if you don't have total view into the data that went into it, you know, you don't know if that was, you don't know the exact parameters of the study, but because Google came out with it, maybe this is going towards our implicit bias. We're conditioned to think that it's a great study. So something like that. Absolutely. And, and actually the, the algorithm that's building it, because it doesn't have the full perspective of the data, its output is biased, meaning it's, to me, it's not reliable. Um, they might state it's reliable, but I'm looking at, okay, what did you use as input for your model? If it was missing doing, you know, not random samples or similar, then I basically have to say it, it, it's not a good output. It's crazy. It's so interesting. Uh, you know, how, you know, how we're all, we all read these things and in the end, it all, all really depends on the inputs, but we don't see them and, you know, really fascinating stuff. But speaking of that, do you think we can ever really fully eliminate bias? That's a good question. No, I mean, I don't think so. Cause a lot of times it happens unconscious, right? Is, is you're not aware of it. How do you eliminate something you're not aware of? And we can put in steps like, um, systemic and systematic processes, but I can't think of a way to do that because putting my computer science and my architecture hat on it, we're not rewiring the brain. Like there is neuroplasty and you can actually rewire things, but the brain hasn't evolved to a point where it can take in 11 million senses at one point in time. Until that happens, bias is going to exist. We just have to mitigate it. So we might get to the point where we do such a good job mitigating it. It's very minimal, but it's always going to exist unless we continue to evolve and, and the brain really can't keep up with technology that's evolving faster. You know, do you think that, say, for example, I, I personally think it's impossible, but you know, that that's another note. But if we, for example, got our bias down to zero, would there be any difference between us and say, for example, a programmed robot? Yeah, I think so because emotions are not necessarily biased and mm -hmm. we have different perspectives. And, and so I do think that we still might make a decision. I, I wouldn't necessarily say making a decision out of emotion is a biased decision. I think it's more of an emotional decision. Mm -hmm. um, whereas bias might be you're missing part of the data. I think the emotional aspect is you might have both data sets, but you're leaning toward the emotional one. Like I know I want to lose weight, but I see that chocolate donut there. I'm still going to eat it. That's not a bias. That's me having the emotions beat the rational part of my brain. Mm -hmm. Got it. So really, really interesting stuff on there. And definitely uh, a lot of stuff to explore. Um, something that you were mentioning earlier was kind of organizations and what uh, what happened with uh, you know the missile crisis and the decision making and you know that went into that. You also have this idea that conflict in organizations is a good thing. Now, a lot of people like to think of organizations as these well-run machines where everyone knows the role. And realistically, that's I don't want to say couldn't be further from the truth, but I'll just say they're much more organizations and jobs are much more dynamic than people give them credit on the surface level for. So in short, why do you think kind of conflicts or conflict or kind of differences in organizations is a good thing? Yep. And I'll, I'll preface this by, I don't like conflict. Like, I, well, I mean, I, I do it, but it's good, but I'm not one of those people that gets, you know, energy off of a conflict. I'm typically conflict averse, but 
if you don't have conflict, then the way that, again, the brains and everything work, you are someone in that meeting has a, a thought or a, a counter opinion to something and they don't want to bring it up because they fear conflict. They like, I just want har harmony in the workplace. I don't want to bring it up. So then it goes back to like the situation we said with the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis in groupthink. If you don't have conflict, you're not innovating. If you don't have conflict, you're not getting different perspectives. And the more you get different perspectives, the more you're seeing possible solutions, the better it is for an organization. A another example with that is I see it all the time in the corporate world. Recruiting and hiring tends to be from the same universities, from the same companies. And those are companies that are usually in the same industry as what you're in. That's not leading to creativity. That's not leading to conflict. That's like, okay, this person is maybe a better choice in the short term because they know our industry, they can get up and running quick, but can they think outside of their industry? Can they innovate? And you look at the companies that innovate, and I'll just call out Google and a bunch of other ones, they intentionally hire from outside of their circle because they want to get those different perspectives. They want to have conflict. They want to have healthy conflict, right? Not people screaming and yelling at each other. But if you're not doing that, you're not moving the needle forward. There's no such thing as everyone in the world sings Kumbaya and we all agree. Like it doesn't happen. So, I mean, you look at politics in the news, like there's conflict here. It's not good, but hopefully it leads to dialogue. That dialogue in a healthy way, healthy conflict helps move the needle. So I'm not obviously talking about wars and stuff, but it, it's kind of the same concept. If you're not having a dialogue, um, you're not doing that. And just one thing about dialogue, a dialogue is not a discussion. Mm -hmm. Discussion is me lecturing to everyone and everyone else not paying attention, but thinking about what they're going to say next to prove that I'm wrong. So in a discussion, let's say me and you and one other person are in a discussion, whether we know it or not, all three of our goals are to win. When you're in a dialogue, there's no winning. There's no answer. The goal is understanding. Mm -hmm. So I consciously have to say, okay, I'm going into a dialogue. I know how I want to do this in my organization, but I want to listen to what Joe and Sally and everyone has to say. So I'm going to suspend thinking about how they're wrong. Um, it takes a little practice, but that then you can enter healthy, productive conflict where you're not like yelling at each other. I think uh, Jeff Bezos actually has a famous way of running meetings in the sense that he's always the last one to speak. So I think he also approaches yep. more, more of a dialogue perspective as opposed to a discussion perspective. But speaking to that, you know, conflict or wanting some kind of conflict in organizations, do you think a lot of times the lack of conflict has to do with people's, you know, risk aversion? And, you know, I can get into the whole historical perspective, but typically people are risk averse and want to stay safe. And sometimes do you think that may inhibit, you know, them from taking, you know, those risks or bringing up those conflicts in the workplace? 100% agree. It all comes back to you had mentioned, and it goes back actually to the brain again, which is fascinating. And the emotional part is we want to survive, right? And so risk aversion sometimes is not that we don't want to get into a conflict, but we don't want to lose our job. We want to protect our families. We want to protect ourselves. It's about shelter, food, shelter. So risk aversion to me sometimes is, I mean, there's probably a small part where it's like, well, I don't want to be wrong and humiliated, but there's a big part where it's like, there are organizations where if you speak up against your boss, you're fired. I mean, think about when we go to school, when I go to, um, I, I grow up and I mentioned my four kids, they say why all the time, it drives me crazy. I don't yell at them. I just kind of answer it. But then you go to school and your teacher says something and you raise your hand and say, why? Usually what happens is they say, Kevin, you're talking back to me, go to the principal. And then you go to your first job and the boss says something and you're like, well, 
hello, politely, sorry, I have a different perspective. And they're like, you just embarrassed me in front of all my peers, you're fired. So risk aversion comes because we're trying to save our jobs, not because we don't want to have the conflict. And it just goes back to the emotional states of, of how the brain works again. You know, for all the follow reasons on a bit of a side note, that's why I was a terrible student in high school. I totally questioned everything uh, that my teachers did. So I guess that's why I'm a podcast host trying to get <laughs> perspective uh, and aside to there. But, you know, it's really fascinating because something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, and, you know, I don't know if this is just one example and there's a bunch of other examples, but I always think back to the Salem witch trials. And, you know, back then, if anyone was just accused of being a witch, it was just like, you know, fear of fear of standing out in a way, you know, then physical action was taken. I mean, those people were abused, not to mention all the terrible things, but ultimately people associated sticking out with death, right? Now, fast forward, you know, I don't want to date myself here or quote too much because I don't know, I don't remember exactly when they happened, whether it was the 1500s or 1600s. I was never a great history student. Nevertheless, you know, before kind of more modern times. Uh, but what's really interesting is today, you know, with, you know, assuming people don't have to deal with, you know, getting killed or any of these, you know, brutal circumstances, you know, these days when people take that chance to stand out or do something or tolerate some sort of uncertainty or are able to be a little different, they get rewarded, whether it's through or I don't want to say always get rewarded, but there's a higher probability of of kind of I don't want to associate everything with money, but kind of making a big impact or leapfrogging or doing something positive. And I think, you know, there are tons of examples of entrepreneurs, of people that have done that, that have stood out. But I think it's really interesting how way back then we were almost conditioned to you know, stay within the pack because, you know, if you stood out, that meant, you know, death or some kind of other physical abuse. And in a way, it's almost even though we know if we do something slightly different, maybe there's fear of embarrassment that, you know, that's an emotional thing. Uh, but, you know, no one's going to hopefully no one's going to kill us. No one's going to like do anything to us. So I think it's it's one of those things that might have been just conditioned into ourselves from way back when not to stand out and to avoid conflicts. That's a, I mean, it's a great point. Absolutely. And I, and I think now that it's all about what you're seeing and experiencing and the more that people are doing that in organizations. I mean, you think of things like Uber, right? No one's like, how can we do transportation without owning cars or Airbnb? How can we do hoteling without owning hotels or buildings? It's those people that said, let me think differently. They felt okay to stand out, kudos to them. And the more they do that, the more of us are saying, hey, they got rewarded for that. They didn't get you know, shot or, or burned at the stake or whatever. Yeah it conditions us to say, okay, it's okay. Now, obviously there's failures in, in along as well, but a lot of times they don't show the failures, they show the successes. So in that case, it kind of helps us because it, it hopefully encourages more people to innovate and go sideways and outside the box. Got it. It's also, you know, it may be over time, you know, I'm definitely not as smart as this as you are regarding this topic, but it could also be that over time, uh, as you see more entrepreneurs think differently, maybe people's risk aversion goes down, you know, a little bit and, they kind of take on a little more risk. So it'll be definitely really interesting to see how that dynamic plays out within organizations. But kind of a, back to, you know, a topic on data. I think one thing that was really interesting, you actually have a post on Twitter that spoke about the impact of how we visualize certain things and how, you know, the way we visualize things, you know, changes the way we interpret them. So I saw this one post where there were two data sets and one was in a bar chart, you know, just kind of typical you know, lines stacking up. And then one was in like a pie chart where you could kind of visually see the sizes, you know, of certain categories relative to other ones. So how do you think, you know, data visualization really impacts the way we interpret this stuff? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great point. We are visual people. So there's been tons of studies that highlight what are the visual components, elements 
like um, similarity or area or shape or orientation that are easier for the brain to process, but also which are the ones that are easier for us to misinterpret. And I'll, I'll pick on the old pie chart as a, as a good example, we even do a three-dimensional pie chart. When you're looking at slices of a pie and you're looking at three-dimensionally, those are shown from studies to be the two most easily um, misinterpreted components that are visual. So in those cases, I wouldn't necessarily use a pie chart if I have like 10 slices, it's, it's hard. I would use something like a bar chart where you can see the sizes in the area and your brain can easily compare them. So that does go back to a science as I do feel there is a science for what the data type is, what the question's being asked, this is the chart you should use. But when people, um, everyone has Excel, everyone has uh, cloud-based tools, they will build, you know, you're in, a, you're in a, a college class, we have to build a paper. Everyone's like, let's add a chart because it takes up space or it makes it look longer and it's pretty. They don't know those things. So they just go and recommend a chart, which they think looks great, but it's probably overly convoluted as a high cognitive load. And because they're not using the right approach, it's leading people to misinterpret it. God, it's so interesting how, you know, these, these small changes in the same data set and the same outputs, you know, change our, our visualization. So definitely something that we should uh, kind of pay attention to going forward. But on a similar note, you know, a lot of times with, you know, the rise in AI and, you know, seemingly, I'll just say infinite uh, data analysis tools, a lot of the times there may be, or we could be subject to misinterpretation, you know, based off a lot of stuff we see online. And We've seen that, not to get into all of them, but in a ton of examples on social media. So kind of against the average consumer, how would you say that we can protect, or for the average consumer, how would you say we can protect ourselves against misinterpretation? Yep, I mean, the, the simplest thing I can say is politely question everything. Mm -hmm. So look at the source. And that doesn't mean that all sources are trusted, but ask questions like, I will ask questions like, when is this not true? In what situation is this visualization not true? And, I'll give another personal example because I think it kind of resonates with with the audience potentially. As I mentioned, four kids. My oldest one has autism and was having a ton of behaviors in school. And we got called into a team meeting, and they're like, "Your son's behaviors are escalating. We can't handle them. We're going to expel them." Um, no, they can't expel him because he was a special ed student. But long story short, they showed me a bar chart and a line chart, and the line was going up. Used the exact right data. Um, they didn't know my background, so I'm like, "Okay." I want to question it. So how do I question it? Well, I understand the action, but tell me more. Can you track the time of day? Because maybe, you know, morning, maybe after lunch, maybe at night, that tells me a pattern. Can you tell me day of the week? Because if it's all Mondays, it's because he's at home on the weekend, or if it's all Fridays, he's in. So they do that. We go back and they show me another line chart. Nope, no pattern. Everything's increasing. They did everything statistically right. They did everything analytically right. One of the questions that I always ask is, in what situation is this not true? And what's really fascinating is the data was showing what the behavior was, like aggression, noncompliance, destruction. Um, it was showing the antecedent, which is what were they doing before? Were they in gym class? Were they at lunch? And it was showing the consequence. And I had that light bulb moment. I turned. I still remember, I turned to my wife and I smiled and I said, I got this. They, long story short, they, the consequence was sending my son to the principal. And like, okay, I'm like, in what situation is this not a consequence? Well, it's not a consequence when the, the person, my son, doesn't mind going to the principal. Mm -hmm. So they bring my son in and, and I'm like, 
how was school today? And it's, like, it's great, Dad. I kicked Johnny. They sent me to the principal. She read to me for an hour. I think I'm going to punch two people tomorrow. Do you think they'll send me back? The <laughs> teacher's jaws just dropped. And, and kind of the takeaway there is they did the right analytics. They did the right data, but they didn't question how the story could be misleading. Mm-hmm. And that's the moral of the story. Like I knew enough to know, okay, well, when is that situation not true? I know my son likes adult stimulation. They might not know that, but you know your business area, you know to question those things. So easiest thing is, when is this chart telling me something that is not true? Like when when can it be something else? And more often when you do that, you're gonna find other scenarios that might be plausible. Got it. So it's basically, you know, based off, you know, the inputs that you gave me in whatever order they're in, when can the data be misleading? And then it's like, once you think about that, even though you might still use the same inputs, you kind of reverse engineer them in a way where you can see other outputs. And, you know, knowing multiple outputs, you can kind of create, you know, the most well-informed decision that you can, basically. Well, exactly. The more outputs you have, they never focus on one thing because you'll fail. There's actually just a quick aside. If anyone ever wants to Google a marshmallow challenge, it's a challenge where uh, teams get um, like spaghetti sticks, one marshmallow tape and whatever, and they're given a time limit. I don't know if it's 20 minutes. And the goal is to build the tallest tower with the marshmallow on top. And they've done this forever. Um, kindergartners, elementary school teams perform better than MBA students, than groups of CEOs, groups of business people, time and time again. And the takeaway from that is all of the adults think they know the answer. So they drive all the way to the time limit, they build it, it fails, and it falls down. The kids don't know because there's nothing in the long-term memory. So they iterate and they practice and they try and they come up with, let's see if these four things work. And out of those four, one of them might work. They end up with a taller, you know, essentially tying it to what you said. The biggest thing is don't sit on just one answer. And that's what we as adults tend to do is have a tunnel vision. This is the right answer. This is all I'm looking at. This is all I'm ever going to work on. We don't think about different perspectives. For sure. I think one thing we could all strive to do and, you know, while we need to be kind of decisive, we should all strive to approach, you know, especially things at work with a childlike curiosity, because I think that will definitely help us be much more uh, holistic in our decision making. Uh, But really interesting around there, especially regarding the outputs. Um, But on a similar note, how do you think we could be more uh, ethical in our decision making, especially considering this day and age? I so I like to think that there obviously there's some people that are not ethical. I like to think there's a majority of people who want to be ethical, but maybe they don't have the right tools to know what they're doing is unethical. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that means that they're unethical because they're not doing it consciously. But I think by having transparency in AI, you know, what are the inputs? What is it doing in the middle? What is the output? You, you have a, a company that uses AI to process credit cards um, and someone gets declined. Is there transparency? Do we know what data went into that because let's say we're training it all on data where people from low-income neighborhoods were declined, it's just going to snowball effect. It's just going to keep declining. To me, that is unethical because I'm not questioning it. So I think the point, it still always comes down to questioning things, looking under the hood, especially with AI, understanding how things were coming. And if it won't let you look under the eye, like if you say to chat GPT, well, what sources did you use? And it's like, I, I don't, I can't tell you my sources then just have healthy skepticism, right? Don't say, okay, this is the answer because uh, a a bot told me that. Got it. Do you think, you know, I forgot if you mentioned this kind of in your previous answer, but do you think that 
say, for example, someone who's objectively unethical, and we'll just kind of assume someone who's who's doing kind of nefarious activities. Do you think that's kind of more of a personal choice, or do you think that's something that's been implicitly conditioned into someone? That is a, the million-dollar question. I mean, I know environment plays a big part in that, but yeah. I know there are people that have those environments that can overcome those environments. So I, I think the best way for me to answer it is environment plays a big part in it. I don't know. I don't have enough research to know whether it's implicitly there at birth or not, but I know environment plays a huge part. But then I also know that you can overcome that. Got it. So it sounds like environment can make it harder, but it's always a choice regarding, you know, how someone approaches the situation. Absolutely. Got it. Really, really fascinating stuff. And I hope, I hope as time goes on, you know, I don't think it'll ever be a hundred percent out of someone's you know control, but I hope that we can, uh, can make those decisions easier for someone when they're trying to do well. So a little note on there, but back to the data literacy point, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of things or a lot of the ways we interpret data are is from visualization or kind of from some of the things that we see. Are there any actionable tips to improving kind of how we interpret data or data literacy? Yeah, I, again, the, the word of the day, I feel like Sesame Street, the letter of the day is, is questioning, is mm -hmm. we just question things. I, I don't think people need to go back and get a math degree. I don't think people need to understand um, statistics. I do think there should be basic data literacy, which to me, understand denominators. If you can be at that level, you can be data literate, because if you see a chart that says, population A has 50% of a flu outbreak, where population B has 20%, most of us say 50 is greater than 20, it's bad in that first one. But unless we understand populations and sample size and prevalence, maybe that population only has 10, 10 people, and maybe the other one has a million. So we wanna be able to ask questions like, well, how many people are in region A versus region B, or those types of questions. So I think having, to me, basic data literacy is understanding those fundamentals of averages and proportions and so forth, but then being able to question the source when you see a percentage, well, what's the makeup of that? What is the denominator? And if you can do that, I think it exponentially helps people overcome misinterpretation. Got it. So to have a center, to have a healthy sense of skepticism and, you know, question things so you can come up with better solutions. I think that's a really good answer. Uh, more on a personal note, you know, with the rise in AI, what's your biggest fear regarding AI? My biggest fear just continues with the data before that is that people use it without an eye to a critical lens. Mm -hmm. And we're going to start making more decisions faster, more important decisions, strategic decisions without the right information. So I don't know what that will then lead to, but my biggest fear is, I want to be politically correct, but it's that we get stupider as technology evolves. Yep. I think I, I think that's, you know, I, not even to say politically correct, I think it's objective, because I think a lot of times if you look at misinterpretation or if you look at, you know, say, for example, if something that factually is inaccurate gets kind of publicized out and then people are conditioned to believe it's accurate, I think that that would lead to not such great outcomes. So. Hopefully there's a little more uh, kind of supervision and, you know, a little more ethical use, especially considering how we interpret that data and how that data is put out. But I'm sure uh, as, as cliche as this sounds, time will tell. So interesting yep. note on there. Uh, on the opposite end of the, the spectrum, what are your most optimistic or what are you most optimistic regarding AI? I, with AI, I think obviously that it is giving us the ability to do things we couldn't do before. Mm -hmm. um, the, the best marriage to me is human and AI and the benefits of both. 
it's giving us access to things that we couldn't do before. Like, like I mentioned, I'm using it to, to question my findings and to, but people are using it to train models, to make decisions faster than ever. It's helping with quality of life. We're able to do things in medicine that we were never able to do. We're able to predict and find diseases before by analyzing data using AI. We're able to pretty much anything we're doing now that's innovative or strategic, there's an AI component behind it. So I'm one of the fans where I like innovation. I like progress. It's intimidating sometimes, but it, it's allowing us to go forward faster than ever before. There is a question if it's too fast, but you know, I, I like progress. I, I don't want to, you know, I, I like the generation that I was born in because we have this progress. I don't know what it would be like, you know, 500 years ago where, you know, everything that existed when you were born is the exact same when you died. Yep. It's definitely chaotic, but it's, it's cool to chase that chaos and see uh, in a good way, an ethical chaos, we'll call it, uh, yeah. to, see, to see where it comes in the future. Uh, on a more fun note, are there any cool AI inventions that you want to see come to light or that you know are coming to light in the next few years? Um, well, I mean, they're coming to light now. One of the things that I like is I, I'm a huge fan of like ChatGPT and other generative AIs. I like now that it, the level of entry to train them on your own data and knowledge is lower. So like I could see a Kevin chatbot that mm -hmm. like want to ask Kevin, he's not here. Let's ask Kevin's ChatGPT. Um, or like from a business point of view, I have books written and I have articles feed all of that into my own personal model so mm -hmm. that people can say, okay, you know, what is data literacy? It can answer it based off of my other information. I mean, that's stuff that's available now and I'm starting to look into it and it, it fascinates me. I, I don't, I'm not talking about dehumanizing. I'm talking about just making things easier for people to access so they, they wouldn't have to go to me or an expert. Imagine having a, a chat GPT from a, you know, a famous scientist where you could ask them questions anytime, 24 seven. Um, or movie stars even like mm -hmm. that, you know, that's powerful. Yeah, that would be cool. It'd be interesting to see, uh, you know, if, if we've seen this much progress with AI, I'll say probably more in the last two years than we did kind of the previous 10. It'll be interesting to see where it is in the next handful of years, but really uh, interesting on there. And, you know, definitely a great discussion kind of surrounding out. And, you know, on a personal note, I know you're really involved in a lot of data literacy and helping companies interpret this data. And about when it's all said and done, what do you want your legacy to be kind of in this area? Um, in this area, I would say I want to be seen as someone who was an educator, help people become better data citizens. Um, and what's interesting is, again, none of that is technical. Mm -hmm. I'm not teaching math. I'm not teaching statistics. It's teaching soft skills. Got it. In a way, it's, in, it's funny. In a way, it's an art that helps you get better at the science. So yes. hopefully, hopefully something that can help out everyone. But Kevin been definitely a, an information filled and educational conversation and you know really appreciate you taking the time absolutely thank you for having me thank you for listening to my conversation with kevin hannigan if you enjoyed the episode rate the show on spotify drop a comment on youtube and subscribe